Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. It is difficult to express how happy I am to be standing upright and to be back. <laughs> oh, well, huh? yes, well. And to be among you all. I have missed you. I am very grateful to both Tom and Micah for keeping the ship afloat. I am full of antibodies now because I have a working immune system. I would like to say that as a result of these antibodies built up in my system that I am now new and improved. More likely, I'm still just old and in the way. But... (laughs) We are about to embark on the next major section of the book of Revelation. This section will take up the whole rest of the book. And for sake of review, we're going to start reading this morning right at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, because chapter 4 starts with, after these things. We're going to have to discuss that phrase, after these things, after what things? And where are we in the timeline, since John makes a time reference here, a sequence reference, and says, after these things, we have to be very clear about what things he is referring to. So, the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1. The Apocalypsis, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which were written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, 
and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet like burnished bronze when it's been caused to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell down at his feet like a dead man, And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Write, therefore, the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. In my introduction to the book of Revelation all those many weeks ago, I said that verse 19 is the outline of the entire book. What John was told to write down very specifically is to write the things which you have seen. I contend that that is what we know as the Gospel of John. Those are the things which John had seen up until that point. After that, write the things which are. That's what we've been concentrating on ever since we began reading the letters to the seven churches. Those were churches that actually existed at that very moment. And so John wrote to them, those are the things that are. But as we get into chapter 4, we're going to get into the next section of this outline because then John is told, and write the things which shall take place after these things. Which is why it is so important that the first words of chapter 4 are, 
after these things, John is writing the things that are going to be in the future. So now we have to take a moment and kind of determine where that start date for the future is, because that will help us understand what John says from this point forward. Because there is a tremendous theological debate within theological circles about when exactly the book of Revelation was written. There are folk who try to early date the book of Revelation, and they say that it had to have been written before 70 A.D., and that most of the events described prophetically in the book of Revelation are the events that took place in 70 A.D., the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and therefore all of the stuff that we're about to read after these things are not future to us. They are things that have already been accomplished in history in Jerusalem, 70 A.D. However, if in fact the book of Revelation was written after 70 A.D., then that theory is completely debunked. So what are the evidences that the book of Revelation was written after 70 A.D.? Well, I told you in my introduction to the book of Revelation, I told you that the best historic evidence that we have comes from Arrhenius, who's quoting Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, and that Polycarp himself said that John was on the Isle of Patmos during the reign of Domitian, That gives us a good historic feel for when John was on the Isle of Patmos. That would have been somewhere in the 90s A.D., 91 to 96 A.D., somewhere in there. That's the best historic evidence that we have. But even if we didn't have that, I would argue that we have internal evidence that the book could not have been written before 70 A.D., What is that evidence, Jim? Well, I'm glad you asked. Paul established most of the seven churches of Asia that we've been reading about for the last several weeks. If he didn't directly establish them, he had direct influence, and people like Epaphras, who learned from Paul, established those churches. For instance, Paul wrote the letter that we know as the letter to the Ephesians. In his letter to the Ephesians, he commended them over and over again for their great love, their love for each other, and their love of Christ. Paul would have been writing that right around 60, 61 AD. We know that Paul was killed by Nero right around 67 AD. So we know it had to be written before 67 AD because Paul died. So we know that it was written right about 60, 61, 62 A.D., right in that period of time when Paul was in prison in Rome. We know that is a historic fact, and yet we're being asked to believe that sometime between when Paul wrote to them in the early 60s A.D., before 70 A.D., whenever John wrote this letter, somewhere in that 10-year period, Well, not even 10 years, because it had to be pre-70 A.D. So somewhere in that very short, very compressed period, the church at Ephesus 
went from having this great love for Christ and each other to John writing to them and saying, you've lost your first love. How did that happen that quickly? Well, if John wrote in the early 90s or mid-90s A.D., that's a 30-year period. That is time for a generational shift where the younger generation who don't remember the establishment of the church or the foundation of the church could, in fact, lose their first love. There has to be a gap of time there. There has to be a period of time wherein these churches that were started on such great foundations had time to go from being churches established and in love with Christ to reaching the point of having Christ speak to them and having nothing good to say to some of them. Well, that doesn't happen overnight. There had to be time, historic development for that to occur. So my point is, there is internal evidence that lets us know that when John starts with the phrase, after these things, he's referring to these letters that have been written to the seven churches of Asia. He's referring to all the things that he saw during Jesus' ministry. And after those things, John is now going to describe what's coming. If he was writing before 70 AD, then he could very well have been making reference to the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of the temple. However, that is historically untenable to think that in that short a period, those churches all completely apostatized that quickly. Instead, there had to be a period of time of development. The best historical evidence is that John is on the Isle of Patmos somewhere in 91, 96 AD. Therefore, when John starts writing things that are after this, he's writing things that are after 90, 91, 96 AD. In other words, there is no historic fulfillment for what we're about to read. When John said, After these things, he cast what he's about to describe out into the future. And because there is no place in history, including, I would argue, including 70 AD, because there is nothing in history that satisfies what we're about to read, this is still future to us. After these things, says John, I looked up. And behold, a door open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking to me, that same voice said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. So there's that phrase again, after these things. Having written to the churches, having explained the current state of the churches, these particular churches, having already recalled the things that John witnessed during the ministry of Jesus, now even Jesus is saying, I'm going to show you things that have to happen after all those things. So it's a sequence. It's very important that you understand that there is a sequence happening here Because through the rest of the book, what we're going to see is a sequence. Now, I will point out that it is not always in strict chronological order, which has caused some people to speculate that there is a recapitulatory element 
to the book of Revelation. They call it the recapitulation theory. In other words, they say that the remainder of the book of Revelation is actually telling the exact same story seven times from seven different angles. But that also doesn't work. If you look at the details, it doesn't work. If you look at John's use of and then, and then, and then, that doesn't work. However, I'm willing to admit that the balance of the book does not follow a real exacting chronological order. But that should not be surprising to us. Those of you who have listened through the book of Isaiah with us, those of you who have listened through the book of Ezekiel with us, those of you who have listened to the minor prophets that we've gone through, know that the prophets of the Old Testament do the exact same thing. They don't stay in exact chronological order. They see the future events as one great big whole, and the prophets of the Old Testament describe future events as one great big whole. And then as time goes by, and as these things are fulfilled, then we can recognize that there are gaps of time. John is doing the exact same thing. John is describing something that's going to occur thousands of years in the future. And he's seeing it as one great big vision, and he is seeing it in sequential order. So he writes it in sequential order. Therefore, we have to read it and understand it in sequential order, even though it doesn't always fall exactly chronological, because you are going to see him make references to some things and then later make reference to that same thing in a different context. So my contention, again, is in order to understand the book of Revelation, we have to read it the way John wrote it. Is that clear enough? John wrote it sequentially. We're going to read it and understand it sequentially. Along the way, we're going to see symbols, and we're going to understand those symbols the way that those symbols are already represented in the Bible. I'm going to try very, very hard not to just assume the common understanding of some of these phrases. Here's what I mean. In a moment, John is going to describe worship in heaven. And as he's describing worship in heaven, he's going to make reference to 24 thrones with 24 elders sitting on those thrones. Now, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon about the 24 elders that didn't at some point say, well, you know, there were 12 tribes of Israel and there are 12 apostles. And so that is somehow significant to the fact that there are now 24 elders. Except that John would be one of those apostles and he's outside of it looking in. There's nothing in the text that requires that we connect the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles to the 24 elders. What John saw was that there were 24 thrones around the throne of God, and there were 24 elders on that throne, and John describes their only function as the worship of God. Perhaps the way we should best understand them is 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones because that's what God wanted. And it doesn't have to be about the 12 tribes of Israel. And it doesn't have to connect to the 
12 apostles. Later, when we get to New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, we're going to find that New Jerusalem is built on the foundation of the 12 apostles, and the 12 gates have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, in that case, the text actually tells us that there is a connection to the apostles and the tribes of Israel. But that connection is not made here. So if we just let John tell his own story, then we have to continue to read context. Pay attention to context. When we get to New Jerusalem, Revelation 21, then we are going to say there is significance to the fact that the foundations and the gates are named after the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. But in this case, John says nothing about the 24 elders being connected to Israel or to the church. I don't think we should impose that idea on the text, except that it's imposed all the time. We do it very, very naturally. In the book of Revelation, there are a lot of numbers. We're going to see a consistency of numbers. We've already seen all these sevens, the seven churches, the seven angels, the seven candlesticks, the seven spirits of God. We see all of these sevens. Now, you've probably all heard at some point that the number seven signifies perfect completion. Have you heard that? It doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. But we've all said it for so long. We've all thought it for so long that we see the number seven and we impose meaning onto it that simply isn't in the text. Here, I'll give you an example. What does the number 40 represent throughout the Bible? A certain number. No, that's exactly it. You're going exactly down the line that I'm thinking. Usually people see the number 40 and they say, well, 40 years in the wilderness or Jesus 40 days in the wilderness. And gee, that proves that Jesus is the perfect Israel or the complete Israel or true Israel. And so people just leap to all kinds of conclusions based on the 40. 40 is a number of judgment. 40 is the, except at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus is with his apostles after his resurrection. And it specifically says he talked to them for 40 days about the kingdom. Is that judgment? Well, no, no, of course not. So we have to be very, very careful about imposing meaning onto numbers because perhaps what the number 7 and the number 24 and the number 40 and the number 1,000 might be signifying that God is a God of order and not confusion. And it is exactly what George said. Each of these numbers are nothing more than a certain number demonstrating the exactitude of the God we worship. So we have to be really, really careful that we're not imposing emotional ideas on the text that simply aren't there. Does that make sense? Yes. I think, sadly... Sometimes we read the text of Revelation, and then our traditions kick in, and we start reading it in that traditional fashion of just assuming meanings. And we've got to be careful not to do that if we're really going to get to what the text is talking about. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door open in heaven. The first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking to me, said to me, come up here 
And I will show you what must take place after these things. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. I cannot tell you how many pro-rapture sermons I have heard that have utilized that text and said that when John, when he saw a door in heaven open and a voice like a trumpet, who we know now from chapter one is Christ, when he said, come up here, that that is representative of the whole church being gathered to heaven when the voice and the trumpet call us together. The text doesn't say any of that. And yet this verse is used constantly as a foundational proof of the rapture of the church. We don't need this verse to prove the rapture. We have First and Second Thessalonians. We have Paul's writing about the rapture. We can, we can completely understand what the Bible does have to say about the rapture of the church by looking at the passages that actually address the rapture of the church. What this verse says is that John himself heard the voice of Christ again, that same voice of a trumpet that had spoken to him earlier back in chapter 1. And that voice said to him, come up hither, and he came up and viewed the worship of God in heaven. And that's all it says. So don't impose onto it ideas, theologies that aren't immediately in the context. Am I raving yet? Look, I haven't gotten to talk in a couple weeks. I've had time to think about this stuff laying in bed, coughing up a lung. Immediately, says verse 2, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. Okay, up until now, I've been trying to kind of develop these theological notions and ideas so that you can understand the way that I'm going to be approaching all this. But at this point, for the balance of chapter 1, we're now going to start reading about the worship of God in heaven. The vision that John sees is very much like what Ezekiel saw. It's very much like what Daniel saw. It's very much like what Isaiah saw. And so this morning, we're going to go look at their visions because this is typical of the entire book of Revelation, which is that there are these Old Testament establishments. And all John is seeing is the continuation of those things the Old Testament has already described for us. And we're going to see that a lot as we go through the book of Revelation. And that is going to allow us to unravel a lot of the more complicated areas of the book of Revelation by just allowing the Bible to already interpret for us what John is seeing and what John is writing. But what I want you to come away with this morning, if you come away with nothing else, just remember that the activity in heaven that John saw and that is going on right now, that Ezekiel saw, that Daniel saw, that Isaiah saw, Everybody who sees God, sees God being worshipped. Non-stop worship, constant worship. God has surrounded himself with angels and living creatures and elders. And all we know about their reason for existence 
is that they're there to worship God. God, who can represent himself any way he wants, decided to represent himself in divine splendor and holiness and continual worship. And so I think the more that we understand that that's the way God has established himself, that ought to be more of an inspiration to us to enter into worship toward God. Because that's what he not only is accomplishing in heaven continually, but that's what he desires eternally. So we need to learn and be diligent about and serious about the worship of our righteous and holy God. And what a privilege. There's a whole world out there that knows nothing about worshiping God. And here he is laying out his expectation. I mean, come on, he's God. He can do whatever he wants. He can represent himself any way he wants. He can have anything going on around him that he wants. But we're going to read this morning four representations, four descriptions that are all similar of the worship of God in heaven, and that really ought to tell us something. Here's how John puts it. Verse 2, immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. In other words, he was glowing. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Can anybody describe that? Emerald rainbow around his throne. As we continue reading this morning, we're going to see that his throne is a mobile chariot of clouds encased in wheels within wheels, and those wheels are full of eyes. Whoa. This is his majesty. This is his glory, by the way. Others saw this same rainbow. It wasn't good enough that God just allowed John to see him, but that he also showed himself as bright and shining and precious and encased in light and rainbows. As if that wasn't enough, though. Verse 4 says, And around the throne were 24 thrones, And upon those thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. Now, we can discuss how it is that they have white robes on, but John doesn't tell us. We know later at the marriage supper of the Lamb that the saints of Christ are going to get their white robes, which is the righteousness of the saints. We're going to receive that as a gift, but John doesn't refer here to a gift of white robes. Rather, they are simply seated in white robes, which means that they are righteous and pure, and, but we don't know how they accomplished that or if God created them in that state and that they are simply holy, angelic beings who God may occasionally delegate some responsibilities to, which is why John would refer to them as elders, 
But we don't know that, so we have to be very careful not to speculate. What we do know about them is they have crowns, apparently crowns of righteousness on their heads. They're dressed in white, which we know is righteousness and purity in heaven. And their entire function is to throw their thrones down at God's feet. That's why they exist. Now, can God create 24 beings, 24 creatures, whose entire function and reason for existence is constant worship to him? Yes. Even if it's repetitive? Even if it's the same motion over and over again for eternity, can he do that? Yes. Of course he can. And that's why they exist. And John saw them and he described them. 24 thrones and upon those thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And from that throne... Proceed flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. How frightening would that be? That would just be astounding and overwhelming. Do you think if God had not meant for there to be lightning and thunder, there would still be lightning and thunder? Or do you think the lightning and thunder exists because God decided, that's what I'm doing? I'm doing 24 elders, I'm doing four living creatures, and I'm doing peals of thunder, and I'm doing lightning, and I'm doing an emerald rainbow, and I am encasing myself in majesty and splendor because that's who I am. From the throne proceeded flashes of lightnings and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Okay, this is a good demonstration of what I was talking about earlier. In chapter 1, we read that Jesus was standing in the midst of seven candlesticks. Then John didn't have to interpret the candlesticks because Jesus himself said that those seven candlesticks were the seven churches and that the seven stars in his right hand were the seven angels of those seven churches. But now, in a different context, John again sees... Seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. But then so that there's no confusion, he tells us that those are the seven spirits of God. So you have to pay really close attention to the context because the interpretations of even particular symbols can change depending on the context. Lampstands that Jesus is standing in the midst of represent the church. Jesus said so. These lampstands standing before God are the seven spirits of God. John says so. So we have to be careful to let the context interpret for us. And before the throne, in front of the throne, there was, as it were, the fact that John uses the phrase, as it were, means that he's struggling to find words to describe what he's seeing. In front of the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Okay, so he's looking at it, and it looks like water. He's looking at it, and it looks like a sea in front of the throne of God. But it's also not water. And so it's glass? Uh, well, well, it's like crystal. Okay, it's glassy crystal in a sea before the throne. And so that's why John says, as it were, 
<laughs> That's what I understood it to be. I was looking at it. I was told to write it down, and I'm trying to describe it to you, but the environment of God is so vastly different than the environment of this world that sometimes John is just going to struggle for language to describe what he is seeing in the glory of God. But now it gets even more interesting and mysterious and yet historic. Second half of verse 6, in front of that sea of glass like crystal, in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. I like that John did not liken those creatures at this moment to anything that we're familiar with. Because there is nothing on earth like that. Quick, name a creature that is full of eyes in front and behind. Well, we can't really. And yet, John is now going to describe them with a hint of familiarity. He's going to describe them in a way that we can go, oh, okay, I sort of get it. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them had six wings and are full of eyes all around and within. Can you imagine wings full of eyes? Now we can interpret this and say, you know, gee, that's representative of God's all-knowing. It's representative of God's all-seeing. It's representative. But, but John doesn't tell us any of that. He is simply describing what he is seeing. And what he is seeing is astounding. By the way, Ezekiel sees these four same living creatures. And he describes them as four individual creatures and that each of those creatures has four heads. But then he says it's like an eagle and a man and a calf or an ox and a lion. So Ezekiel seeing the exact same thing. John is just simply saying, I saw the same thing Ezekiel saw. This is how God continues to represent himself. Verse 7, the first creature was like a lion, and the second was like a calf, and the third creature had the face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle, and the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they do not cease in their worship. That's why they exist. Their function, the reason that God created them, is so that day and night, nonstop, continually, without ceasing, they declare the worship of God. And they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. You may recall, as we were reading chapter 1, in verse 8, God himself says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, 
the Almighty. In chapter 1, that's the way God speaks of himself, defines himself as the one who was and is and is to come, the eternal one and the Almighty, the one who has all the power, the one who has all the authority. So apparently he knows that about himself. He states that about himself. And yet he's got living creatures around his throne whose entire job nonstop all the time is to announce that he is the holy, holy, holy one and he is the one who was and who is and who is to come. He is the Almighty. Even though God knows that about himself, he created beings who would announce it to him nonstop, continually. How does God get away with that? Because for any of us, I mean, just pick somebody. Shane gets up one day and announces to Elizabeth that he desires worship and praise for the rest of his life, which he agrees with at this moment. (laughs) He is nodding vigorously to her. If Shane came in one day and said, I deserve worship beyond what any other human deserves, we would put him in a padded room and look at him through a little window in the door because Shane's gone around the corner and he's not coming back anytime soon. Because we are egocentric, sinful, fleshly humans, when we see this kind of display, we think of it in terms of pride and ego and Wow, God seems awfully self-centered. I mean, he knows he's the only holy one, but then he invented creatures who would just continually announce that he's the holy one? That seems a little self-involved there, God. Why can God do that? And we can't. Because he's the only one who deserves it. He is the only one who is absolutely holy. He is the only one who requires expects, desires, and deserves nonstop worship forever. And so he has created his heaven in such a way that it all redounds to his glory and it all redounds to his worship nonstop. So we ought to get on board with that. Day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the four living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, then the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne And will worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy art thou, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you did create all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. He's the creator God. He's the holy God. He's the righteous God. He's the singular God. He's the all-powerful God. And notice that even created beings in heaven 
who apparently didn't fall and go through the redemption of Christ, these created, sustained beings before the throne, in their worship to him, say that he's the one who deserves glory and honor and continual thanks. That's what it is to worship God. That's what it is to praise God. It's so much more than just saying, I praise you, God. Try that out someday on like April. Try it on your husband one day. Just walk around behind him going, I praise you, Micah. Okay, maybe Micah likes this idea. But just walk around saying, oh, I praise you, praise you. When he does anything good, if he helps make the bed or something, go, I, I praise you, I praise you. Eventually, that's going to mean nothing because you're just saying it over and over. I praise you, I praise you, I praise you. How do you really praise him? You say things to him like, you're a good husband. You're a good provider. You're, you're faithful. You're loyal. You say things to him like, you're a good cook. I have no idea if you're a good cook. But you actually, in order to praise him, say things to him that are praiseworthy. You don't just walk around saying, praise, 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 praise. This is the same thing that's happening in heaven. God is demonstrating how he expects to be praised because his own worshipful living creatures don't just say, glory and praise, glory and praise, glory and praise. Instead, they say, you're the one who created everything. You're the one who has all the power. You are the one who deserves to be thanked because everything exists for you. They are actually praising him. And so when you pray to God and you start praising God, list the things he has done for you. List the things you know about him. Say out loud, admit to him everything that he is in his preeminence in your life. That's what genuine praise is. And that's the kind of praise that goes on in heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. Okay, there they are admitting, you're the holy one. You're completely holy. You're not spotted or stained with even the, the shadow of sin. You are completely holy. But on top of that, you also have all the power. You are the almighty one. And you are the one who was, and you're the one who is right now, and you are the one who is to come. You are the eternal one. And so you deserve uh, all the glory and all the honor, we need to honor you and uphold you and speak well of you. And thanks, we, we need to be thankful to you because we exist and live and have our being because of you. Our lives are completely wrapped up in you. Our existence is wrapped up in you. So worthy are you. You are our Lord and our God. So you're worthy to receive glory and honor. And power, we ascribe to you all authority and all power because you are the all-powerful one. You're the almighty. We have no power at all. And you proved your power by the fact that you made everything and everything exists for your pleasure, for your desire. The fact that you wanted things to exist is the reason that those things exist. And you created all things. And because of you, all those things exist and were created that's how you praise God. 
And that's the way he has praise going on at this very moment in heaven. Okay, we're going to have to kind of hurry now because it's hard for me not to carry on wildly about the worship of God in heaven. If you would then turn to Isaiah 6. Let's start there. That will be the shortest of the sections we're going to look at this morning. Isaiah 6. I'm sure you are familiar with this passage. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. Lofty and exalted. High and lifted up. That's what Isaiah saw. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim, which means burning ones. Fiery angels. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. Oh, that sounds familiar. That's what John saw. With two, he covered his face. That, I don't have time to extrapolate about all this. But even fiery angels, pure, unfallen, elect angels, cover their eyes in front of that holy, righteous God. I mean, what's holier than holy? What's more perfect than perfect? And yet that's God, who even the perfect beings around him, because they are created beings, still cover their eyes in his sight. And with two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Okay, now, this is a little different than what John heard the angels saying. Some of them were extolling God's characteristics. Some were extolling and praising God. And yet the one thing they all have in common is that they're saying, holy, holy, holy. We have talked in years past here at GCA about the fact that holiness is God's chief attribute. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Sometimes people are under the impression, because it's emotionally attractive, that of all God's attributes, the one that is most definitional of God is his love. And they will quote, God is love. And they will say that means that everything else that God does flows through his chief attribute of love. Love is the motivating characteristic by which he does everything else. And that's a nice notion. That's a nice idea. It's just not true because we can talk about God's loving grace. We can talk about his loving kindness. How do you talk about God's loving wrath? Because that's also one of his characteristics. His loving condemnation of masses of people. That's because love, although it is a characteristic of God, yes, God is love. But equally, the Bible says in the exact same phraseology, our God is a consuming fire. Those are both true of God. So then what is his chief 
characteristic. What is his chief attribute? His chief attribute is his holiness. Everything else he does, everything else that is him, flows from the fact that he is holy. And we can talk about the holy love of God and the holy grace of God and the holy righteousness of God. And we can talk about the holy wrath of God. And we can talk about the holy judgment of God. Because everything about God is that he is holy. And you will notice, I know it's a trite joke and I'm going to make it anyway. You'll notice that the angels in heaven are not flying around his head singing love, love, love. Da, 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 da. All you need is love. That's not what's happening up there. They're flying around his throne announcing holy, holy, holy. Whether in Isaiah's context, whether in John's context, the chief thing that God has decided his angelic creatures are going to announce back to him continually, nonstop, eternally is holy, holy. Holy. Not even you are holy. You don't even get the right to designate something about him. He just simply is holy. And all you do is recognize that and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory, says Isaiah. The foundations and the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, the same way that John, when he heard the trumpet voice speaking to him, I fell down as dead. That's the proper reaction. If you ever come face to face with God, fall down. Get on your face before that God. Isaiah said, woe is me, I am ruined, because the first thing you will recognize when you recognize the holiness of God is that you will recognize your lack of holiness, and you will recognize your sinfulness, and all you can say to that God is, mercy, have mercy on me, I don't deserve the least of your kindness Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and he didn't even have the internet. Man, the internet is full of people with unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Woe is me, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then in an act of astounding grace... One of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. How does your uncleanness get clean? God has to do it. And even in Isaiah's case, he did it through an intermediary. In order for Isaiah to be able to have a conversation with God, God had to first clean his lips. Turn to the book of Daniel, if you would. Daniel chapter 7. Let's go there. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as 
He lay on his bed and he wrote the dream down and he related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night and behold, there were four winds of heaven that were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts were coming up from the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked up. And it was lifted up off the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a human mind was given to it. We will come back and revisit all of this as we continue through the book of Revelation. But I just want you to see this vision that Daniel has. Behold then, verse 5, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side. And three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And... Thus they said to it, Arise and devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings like a bird. The beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after that I was looking in my night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, And it had iron teeth, and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. You're going to see a lot of tens, references to ten horns, and references to that very beast in the book of Revelation. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. The three of the first horns were pulled up by its roots before it, before the little horn. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. And so I kept looking until the thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and his hair of his head was like pure wool and his throne was ablaze with flames. And its wheels were burning fire. That's why I said earlier, the throne of God is described repeatedly as a chariot of clouds. With wheels, within wheels, and wheels of fire. Verse 10, a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. And thousands upon thousands were attending him. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. And the court sat, and the books were open. And then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking, and I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. And as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted them to them, For an appointed period of time. And I kept looking in the night vision. And behold. With the clouds of heaven. One like the son of man was coming. And he was coming up to the ancient of days. And he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion. Glory and a kingdom. That all the peoples and the nations. And men of every language might serve him. Because his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one. Which will not be destroyed. Daniel is seeing the same thing that John saw. John is seeing the same thing that Isaiah saw. Turn to the book of Ezekiel. And we'll finish the morning there. 
If you're in Daniel, just go back to Ezekiel, which is the previous book. Are you bored yet? No. Are you getting some sense of the God of this Bible? Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. It came about in the 13th year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Chebar among the exiles, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God, just like John. I looked up, a door was open in heaven, and a voice said, come up here. Same thing Ezekiel went through. On the fifth of the month, in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's exile, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Chebar. And there the hand of the Lord came upon him, and as I looked, behold, storm winds were coming from the north, and a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually, and a bright light around it, and in its midst something like glowing metal in the midst of a fire. Even Ezekiel is struggling to find words to describe the appearance of God. Within it, there were figures resembling four living creatures, four living beings, and this was their appearance. They had a human form. Each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, and their feet were like calves' hoofs, and they gleamed with burnished bronze, like burnished bronze. Under their wing, on their four sides, were human hands. As for the faces and the wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another, their faces did not turn when they moved, and each went straight forward. As for the form of their faces, each one had the face of a man, all four of them had the face of a lion on the right side, and the face of a bull on the left side, and all four had the face of an eagle. That's what John saw. John saw the same creatures before the throne of God that Ezekiel saw. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each had two touching another being and two covering their bodies. And each went straight forth. Wherever the spirit was about to go, they would go without turning as they went. And in the midst of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire. Oh, you mean like the coals of fire that touched Isaiah's lips? And there were like torches darting back and forth among the living beings, and the fire was bright, and the lightning was flashing from the fire, just like John saw lightnings and thunders. And the living beings ran to and fro like bolts of lightning. Verse 15, now as I looked, at the living beings, behold, there was one wheel on the earth beside the living beings for each of the four of them. So each of the four living beings apparently had one wheel. Verse 16, the appearance of the wheels and their workmanship was like sparkling barrel. And all four of them had the same form and their appearance and their workmanship being as if one wheel were within another. Wherever they moved, they moved in any of four directions without turning as they moved. And as for the rims, they were lofty and awesome. I think Ezekiel just ran out of words there. 
It's the rims of the wheels. I, I, don't, I can't even describe them like a stone. I can't describe them like anything I'm familiar with. All I can tell you is, wow. They were lofty and they were awesome. And the rims of all four of them were full of eyes round about. No wonder he couldn't describe it. And whenever the living beings moved, the wheels moved with them. And whenever the living beings rose from the earth, the wheels rose also. And wherever the spirit was about to go, they would go in that direction. And the wheels rose close behind them. For the spirit of the living beings is in the wheels. Is there anything like that on earth? Is there anything you can compare that to? Look at verse 22. Over the heads of the living beings, there was something like an expanse, like an awesome gleam of crystal extending over their heads. And under that expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward the other. Each one of them also had two wings covering their bodies, one on each side, one on one side, one on the other. I also heard the sound of the wings like the sound of abundant waters as they went, like the voice of the Almighty, the sound of tumult, like the sound of an army camp. And whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse that was over their heads. And whenever they stood still and dropped their wings... Now above the expanse that was above their heads, there was something resembling a throne. Finally, we get to God. Everything I've been reading in Ezekiel so far was setting up the scene for the entrance of God. Above the expanse, above their heads, there was something resembling a throne like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne high up was the figure with an appearance of a man. And then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around and within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward I saw something like fire and there was a radiance around him. And as the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of his surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. All I want you to come away with today is that that's what John saw. That's what John was told to write. So John wrote it down. There is very limited necessity to engage in wild interpretation. The text, Old and New Testament, says what it means to say, and what it says is phenomenal. What it says is glorious. What it says is beyond our comprehension. And because it's beyond our comprehension, stop messing with it. Let it be what it is. It is the word of a glorious, holy, righteous God with whom you have to do. As I was reading those various descriptions, I'm sure there were moments where you just felt overwhelmed and astounded. I hope that's the case. Because you have to stand in front of that God. And how are you going to do it? Are you going to stand there and talk about you? 
going to stand there and say, yeah, I see all that stuff you got. Let me show you what I got. I brought you these filthy rags. They can commend me. The only way you're going to stand in front of that God is if you have an intercessor who is that God. That's the only hope you have. Because a God that righteous, that holy, that almighty, that powerful, that God is not going to bend for you. And there's only one way to approach that God, and that's what the revelation of Jesus Christ is about. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.